Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. I'm super excited for this episode as I'm going off track and there's no pun intended here, but there will be lots of those throughout the chat. I'm speaking with professional racing car driver, Phil Hansen. In the field of endurance sports car racing, Phil has already smashed records and competed in prestigious races such as Le Mans 24 and Rolex 24 at Daytona alongside two-time F1 champion Fernando Alonso. Phil is the youngest driver to be crowned World Endurance Champion. He has won the European Le Mans series and was the youngest ever Brit to win the famed 24 Hours of Le Mans in September 2020. His list of amazing achievements goes on. He was the first driver to win Le Mans and hold both the WEC and ELMS titles in the same year. And other highlights include becoming the youngest Asian Le Mans series champion when he won LMP3, the youngest European Le Mans series outright race winner, the youngest outright championship winner of the Asian Le Mans series, and the youngest ever overall top 10 sports prototype finisher in the Le Mans 24 hours. I'm exhausted just reading that list. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with um, the question I start with everybody, and that's to really get a sense of what it is you do. So what do you do for a living? Well, um, I'm a racing driver in, um, in the side of motorsport, which is called endurance or sports car racing. Um, most typically, I kind of explain it to people as Le Mans. Um, Le Mans is our most famous race. It's a 24-hour race. Um, there's been movies about it recently, Le Mans 66 or Ford versus Ferrari. I was never too sure which it was called. I think they changed the name halfway through the production of that. Um, and essentially, it's in exactly the same sort of motorsport as, as you get in, in F1, apart from there's three drivers sharing a car, typically, um, and you exchange like a relay and do driver changes during the pit stop. And the length of races are longer than a Formula One race. Um, and the last aspect that makes it different is the fact that there's multiple classes racing on the track at the same time. So cars at different speeds and capacities, um, which adds this traffic element. So in the past, I know, um, you know, criticism has happened against Formula One and occurred because of, you know, lack of overtaking. Well, in endurance racing, we have huge amounts of overtaking predominantly through traffic um of overtaking slower cars on track at the same time um so it's you know three different categories of cars racing on the track at the same time all at different performance levels um so whilst you're racing your competitors in your own class you might be coming up against much slower cars um trying to overtake them lose as much time battle amongst them whilst not, either not trying to lose a position behind you or trying to gain an advantage on your competitor um, in and amongst that environment, which makes it very hectic, but um, but quite exhilarating. And then we all still race with GT cars, which are your typical Porsche, Ferrari, Aston Martins, um, all that sort of thing. Um, and they're the slowest category. Um, again, they're racing in their own class. We're racing in our own class. And the LMP1 now rebranded hypercar is racing in their own class. Um, but yeah, for the past few years, LMP2 has been, I'd definitely say, one of the most or the most competitive class. Um, at Le Mans, we've had sort of 25 cars all racing. And Le Mans is obviously our longest race. It's 24 hours long. That's the one people most often recognize or have heard of, at least. And, and it's got the most heritage. And that's the easiest one to explain to people what I do. I just say, well, have you heard of Le Mans? If the answer is no, I, I don't normally try to explain it. Um, but if the answer is yes, I just say, well, that's exactly what I do and, and what I've been racing. So Le Mans is essentially one of the seven rounds of the World Championship. Most of the races are the same tracks as, as F1. You know, there's only so many racetracks in the world. You know, Spa, Monza, um, Portimao, um, Bahrain, these sort of tracks that are all shared between our calendar and F1 on different dates. Um, Le Mans is unique the same way Monaco is unique to F1. It's predominantly a street circuit that gets made into a racetrack for that weekend. Um, and that's why Le Mans and Monaco both have such, you know, sort of such a crazy environment around it all is because you can't go there at any time other than that one race that year, really, to race and practice. So it becomes more difficult, but at the same time, it's it's got more prestige to it. Um and Le Mans, you know, this next year we're celebrating the 100th race there. It's, it's been around since the beginning of motorsport. And, yeah, the, the heritage is, is enormous. 
and yeah, there's like like I said, there's there's so much sort of um, history behind winning the race and the race itself, with it being 24 hours long, it's it's the ultimate test on the teams, the drivers, and the cars. And quite often we forget through through watching motorsport on TV and stuff about you know we just watch the cars and the drivers, we forget all the teams and, and people and individuals behind behind the scenes making it work. And at Le Mans especially, it's it's 24 hours of pretty much no sleep for these guys and um 30 something pit stops um every 30 something minutes uh it's, it's a lot of work and a lot of stress and you know i wouldn't be able to do what i do without a really strong team behind me um so i race for a team called united autosports um, which is a uk-based team it's based in yorkshire so um lots of tea and stuff like that are around the around the garage when when we go racing um, but yeah, a bunch of really good guys and and super committed to the job and and yeah, we, we we've had a lot of success. Like in 2020, we we won Le Mans, um, and I, yeah, a large amount of that's attributed to to the amount of work that these guys put in, not only in the race but throughout the year. So okay, th- there's lots of stuff to unpick there that um, <laughs> that I um, I'm going to ask you about. So you typically racing on a track, and Dakar is one of the races as well, isn't it? That's quite well known. Yeah, so so the FIA, going back to what you said, the FIA is like the governing body, um, and they govern motorsport, essentially. Um, they govern the top level of motorsport, whether it's Dakar, which is like a rally, like an endurance rally. They they, they govern rally itself, the World Rally Championship. They govern the single-seater single seater field of Formula 3, Formula 2, Formula 1, and then endurance. Um, and then they have kind of their foot in other championships all around the world, um, implementing safety and other regulations to make sure that the standards held for, for you know, the progression of, of motorsport. Okay, what's the difference with the Indy Five Hundred? The Indy Five Hundred is is um, it to to many people it looks like a Formula One car. Um, it's a single seater, so um, I mean, in our cars we still only have one seat, obviously, but it's typically referred to as a single seater, um, and that races around an oval. Well, not quite an overall, but more or less an overall. Um, and it races, well, the Indy 500 is a race in that championship. It indeed doesn't only race around ovals, it also races on street circuits and racetracks. Um, and that's the American championship. Um, and the Indy 500 is one of the biggest races. So the, there's something called the Triple Crown, which is um, the three biggest motorsport races in the world. One of which being the Indy 500, the other one bit being the Monaco Grand Prix, and lastly Le Mans, the 24-hour race. So, I mean, importantly, you were the youngest winner. Is that correct of the series? Le Mans. I think I was perhaps the youngest British winner. Um, I don't think I was the youngest winner overall um, in history, but I was. I was quite young when I won. I think I was. I mean, I was 20. Um, yeah, I was twenty. So, so that is young. Was I twenty? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it is young. Yeah, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but there were, I think there was someone that might have won it when they were nineteen. Right. Okay. Um, but but yeah, um, youngest British winner, I think, um, and youngest, perhaps youngest winner of WEC, the World Endurance Championship in LMP2. There's a few accolades. I mean, pretty much these days you can kind of create a, a statistic <laughs> if you're creative enough. Um, but yeah, I was I was very young when I won it. So, what attracted you to this? Because you've been racing for—I mean, you, you're still young. Uh, you've been racing for what, eight years or so. Is that correct? Yeah, probably a bit more now. Um, I started like anyone in go karts um, as, as as a kid, but I'd say I started quite late. I started when I was thirteen, um, fourteen, um, and most kids that kind of make it into a sort of professional career they start at between six and eight. Um, and yeah, so I started what's considered quite late, might still sound quite young, 13, um, but for go-karts, you know, you can start very young these days. Um, and I, I don't really know what initially attracted to me. I think it was like most people on holiday or at your local go-kart track, just on your sort of pay and play, um, kind of thing. And I, yeah, I really just had a knack for it and enjoyed it and, um, and I think I was always quite a very, well, I, was, I am a very competitive person, naturally. But as a kid, I was very competitive and probably had le- less self-control. Um, so that really shone through with motorsport and that urge to win and improve kind of took over. And, and I found myself that 
I was always quite sporty, but racing was was my best sport. Um, and then as I kind of got to an age where I was forced to take it seriously, um, I stopped doing some of the other sports I was sort of passionate about, but hadn't dedicated that much time to and and gave gave racing everything and yeah i haven't looked back since yeah i mean it's amazing because i mean you have to be driven to want to win um and in the, yeah, mind the pun <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and in that environment i mean there's i'm imagining you know there's a, an element of excitement adrenaline um fear typically what speeds are you going at so i mean it's funny because the last couple of years we've been going a little bit slower with regulations, but um, when we won it um, in 2020, I think we were kind of doing 340 kilometers an hour, roughly, um, which which sounds like a really big number, um, which is, I think, like 215-ish, give or take five mile an hour, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but it's not actually the the top speed which is that impressive because most cars can kind of reach that um, in in racing. It's the corner speeds and and the fact that we're doing that for the length of time in which we're doing it for. Um, in the regulations at Le Mans, we we can't drive for more than four hours in a six hour period. But of those four hours, you could be averaging a heart rate of up to sort of one fifty if you if it was very hot. Um, normally between one three five and one fifty. So it's it's like going for sort of a three four hour run. So Physically, it's quite mentally, you know, physically it's draining. Mentally, you've got that fatigue as well. Um, and then you you kind of put in the stress, the environment, the adrenaline on top of all that. And then the last straw is the lack of sleep because if I talk you through a normal Le Mans, we, with sharing the car with two other drivers, it means that if normal, most stints are kind of two and a half hours long um, between, you know, three or four stints of refueling before you change driver, and one driver's in for two and a half hours um, at a time. But the time I get out, eat food, see a physio, um, get some treatment, shower, change, try and go off for sleep, I then need to be ready before then my next driver's, before I'm about to get in the car, you know, with my helmet on, dressed again, haven't spoken to the engineers. I'm always watching the race, seeing what's happening with the timing, where we are. The, the, the dynamic if there's weather's changing whatever um so i can't just you know wake up 10 minutes before and jump in the car it, it you end up not having actual time to really get away and sleep so you've got that extra sort of difficulty with the fact that you're you're doing it on pretty much no sleep waking up at maybe 2 30 in the morning um and in sort of 45 minutes you're in the car and it doesn't start with like a get in the car close the door off you go. It starts with the driver change, which is one of the most stressful parts of, of, of your stint because you need to get in the, some, one driver needs to get out the car, the other driver needs to get in the car, the belts need to be done up all within the time it refuels, which is 30 seconds. But you have to do it quicker than that just to be sure in case there's any issues. Um, and it's not an easy process. It's a routine that we practice consistently throughout the weekend, throughout the year, and we, we spend days on it um, with the other workshop with the team. But it's quite a stressful, you know, thing. You you're not just jump jumping in the car. You're you're rushing really. But it's it's in the high speed cornering. That's that's where it's it's actually quite impressive to me what the cars can do nowadays with all the levels of of downforce and the technology technology in the car and the evolution of these cars nowadays. They're you know like planes that use you know aerodynamics to take off. We use aerodynamics to push us into the ground and create downforce and give us grip, so we can go through high speed corners faster than we've ever have. Um, and, and that's the that's the part that excites me. Okay, so this is the luxury bit because all of that sounds like um, a luxury experience to me that you have a team behind you who's making sure that you are able to perform to your best. Um, you've got teammates who hopefully you don't get pissed off at because they're getting out the car too slowly um, or yeah. driving too slowly. Um, and um, is the car custom, is it custom built to the, the three drivers? So there's, it's, it's one of, in LMP2, it's one of four manufacturers. Um, most teams will run one type of car called the Orica. Um, that's what we run. It seems to be the most competitive in, in our category. Um, and then from that, there's regulations to what you can and cannot change. It's quite tight these days. Um, with the year we won, it was very open. You could do a lot to it. And of course, the setup of the car itself changes massively. Um, you know, we're talking about um, 
bars and springs and, and stiffnesses throughout the whole car. And, and obviously, because the car is so stiff and we run, drive it so fast, that small changes can have a huge, um, huge effect on the car. So even the car's ride height, which we, we talk about quite a lot, which is like the, the height of the car essentially through corners, dynamically on the track or statically in, in the pits, by changing it, we change it in millimeters. So one millimeter. Um, and it could be a massive change to change the car five millimeters at the rear or drop it five millimeters at the front. And that's the sort of detail we're, we're going to. How do the three of you, the three drivers, work together to ensure that you're going to get the most out of that car? There's, there's obviously, it's not just us working on ourselves. We have, you know, members of the team helping us. Um, we look at data. Um, there's data from all our laps, driving data that we can look at to see when we're braking, the minimum speeds, when we're picking up throttle, the steering input, um, all the sort of binary stuff like gear choice and things like this that shouldn't really change that much. And we can overlay that data between us. So if my teammate might have done a faster first sector than me on said lap, I can overlay that with my first sector and see the gain and loss with a delta. Um, so I could see I've lost a tenth in that corner, but I've gained two tenths in this corner, but I've lost another tenth in that corner where I've lost, where I've gained, what he's done to gain and lose that time. And then the the key is really translating what we see on data into real life. Um, being able to read data, it, it becomes a bit of a skill, but once you've got it, it's, it's quite useful. Um, so I wouldn't say necessarily we're helping each other. I think the bit of the best help we can do is just perform to our best ability and let that competitive nature push the other two guys um, it, within within you know within reason let's say um if someone's really struggling then you might have to help but at this level you wouldn't really tend to see that um but the most important thing is just keeping your levels high and, and making sure you're performing to the best of your ability which will then bring on the other two because you don't want to be left behind um and your teammate in many ways is your first point of comparison because you're in the same car you will be given the same conditions at some point throughout the weekend so um, it reflects very badly on you perhaps if you are much slower um, so that sort of competitive nature keeps you as a team and you as a car crew and you as a, a triplet of drivers pushing forward and competitive each of the drivers ha will have a different style so doesn't that impact on the way the car behaves yeah it's a very good question and, and the setup especially um some drivers prefer a car to be set up in a slightly different way than other drivers. Um, and it, yeah, so there's a lot of compromise needed. Um, in terms of driving style, that, that's normally spoken about in, in, in setup. So a driver that's maybe much more aggressive with steering inputs, for example, as a sort of binary concept, might need a car that's more dull and lazy on the front end of the car in, in reaction. A driver that's very smooth might want a car that's what's called very on the nose or has got a very strong front end. Um, so being able to adapt is obviously very key because you might find yourself in conditions or circumstances where the car isn't set up to your personal preference. Ultimately, it's faster for the three of you. Um, and also being able to flick between different driving styles based on the conditions of temperature, weather, tire age things like this fuel 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 weights as well that's one thing that really impacts lap time is as the fuel comes off and the car gets lighter that 50 kilos that it gets lighter can be a second a lap um so just the little differences that come along with that making sure you're exploiting that potential performance gain as that stint goes on and as the car becomes lighter um it's very easy especially in le mans to get stuck in a rhythm and just doing the same lap times and breaking the same point but you need to be constantly pushing and adapting to the conditions of the track because if there's no rain, for example, the track rubbers in and the track gets quicker. Um, and actually, there's a point in Ed Le Mans which always the fastest laps are set, which is the golden hour, which is uh, um, the sunrise when the air is still very cold. So the track is essentially, the, the car can perform the fastest. You've got the most downforce because the air is, is more dense. The engines run better. Um, but the light's starting to come through the night, so you're starting to be able to see where you're going. You've got a bit more confidence. 
Um, that's normally when you start seeing all the purple sectors and purple lap times, which is um, the color code for when you're looking at a, a screen of lap times for when someone's done the best of their car or the best of anyone. And do you get the readings from everybody else, from all your competitors? Lap time-wise, data like that, yes, you do. You won't see their setups or or anything else. Um, and there's lots of technology nowadays and data that we can see a lot about what other cars are doing um, more in detail than we ever have before. You typically see these, I suppose, garages where you've got these teams of people waiting to, you know, in the for a pit stop, for example, you know, and they, there's the speed at which they, I don't know, change the tires, refuel, whatever they've got to do, um, is quite phenomenal. And then you wonder, I suppose, how many people are behind, you know, are working behind the scenes to make sure that the performance of the car and the driver is, you know, as good as it could be. I mean, how many people are there that work uh, in your team? I mean, on a race weekend or at Le Mans. Um, the team runs two cars. Um, so we have a sister car um, with another three drivers. Um, and excluding the drivers, I think there's somewhere around 40 staff on, on uh, Le Mans between both cars. Um, yeah, and that's for anyone that's between, you know, engineering, mechanics, um, all the way right the, through, right the way through to sort of catering and physios and um, operational managers, media logistics all these sort of things that go into it how do you stay focused because i'm assuming you have to be focused i mean and not distracted by everything that's going on around you i mean to be honest just the job at hand you know you're, you're all there to win i think even people that are uncompetitive that weekend still deep down believe there's a chance they can win um that sort of engulfs you on the weekend and, and that becomes your primary objective so anything that's going to get in the way of that as a sportsman um, is quickly sort of pushed out of, of my mind, especially um, staying focused in the race is can become more difficult as the fatigue sets in and you start to get tired. Um, dietary choice, fitness levels then make the difference. Do you consider yourself a craftsman? I mean, I ask that within the context of, of luxury. How would you, how would you define craftsman? Well, you're trying to perfect what it is that you're doing and craftsmanship is around perfecting um you know whether it's making something building something and uh, you know i guess i guess i'm sort of i'm a craftsman but in a skill that might not always present a reward the reward comes as a trophy or a championship title or something like that um and the craft isn't always something tangible it's it's skill and, and i'm crafting myself essentially so it's acknowledging that there's a, a skill element and then i suppose at the end of the, you know if you get the trophy i mean that's amazing but if you don't you still have to be skilled in what you're doing um, and there's a craft in in being able to drive at 300 kilometers an hour there's only certain things that you could be good at and I guess you need to really work hard at things to really excel. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. I think, you know, acknowledging, I mean, and that's why the, this craftsmanship discussion is important because you acknowledge that certain people can do things differently um, and that creates aspiration and inspiration um, and also, you know, it highlights the strength of um, somebody's ability to do something that you can't. And that's all about craft, I think, and skill. For sure. I, I think you're right. And I think there's there's something quite wholesome about being able to to not envy someone's ability to do something well and rather celebrate that um, and sort of be humble enough to recognize that you might not ever be at that level. Um, and But then work really hard and, and try and sort of commit yourself to what you can improve on and what you can potentially be the best at. And a sport is obviously very, very different. I mean, it isn't actually that different. I guess life, you try and excel on, on areas where you compete with other people on. Um, and that's kind of how our society works. It's based on, it should be based on merit at least. And, and sport is, is the sort of pinnacle of that. And at least in, in my sport, it's kind of rewarding when you see people doing well based on their merit. The LMP2, is it as glamorous as um, Formula One appears to be. So you, uh, I was going to be really on PC. You've got girls in bikinis and um, jets. And, um... <laughs> it, it, is, it is at Le Mans for certain people um, because Le Mans is our greatest event. 
But I think, um, you know, for largely when I say, I, you know, I travel to, to China and Japan and America and, and the Middle East and, and across Europe, people say, wow, it must be great to, to experience all these different countries. And I said, yeah, I've visited, you know, whatever, how many countries. Um, and they say, what, it's, what, what is it like? And I, I tell them, well, I can tell you what the airport's like and I, take them what, I can tell you what the hotel by the racetrack's like and I can, I can tell you what the racetrack's like. I can't tell you much more. Um, and I was saying this to one of my friends recently that, I, you know, I went to Norway, I'd never been to Scandinavia and I went on this fitness camp and it was great. I was, I was actually able to see and, and embrace the culture and, and enjoy the, my time there and see the great landscapes and a lot of it through the, the, the hours of cross-country skiing. But I was able to take Scandinavia off my list. And I said, I really want to go to, to Portugal and Lisbon. And they were saying, well, oh, don't you have races then? I said, yeah, I've, I think I've been there probably about 20 times in my life on 20 different occasions. And I haven't spent a day in Lisbon, although I've flown into Lisbon, I can't tell you how many times. Um, so whilst it may look very, very glamorous because we might be posting sort of the ideal photo through social media, which is absolutely not the reality of life. Um, the most part is long waits in airports, um, higher car queues, um, late nights at the track, early mornings from the hotel, that sort of thing, um, and very little experiencing the towns or or cities. The only time I would say I actually try and make an effort to do that is when I when we have a race in, in Japan. The racetrack is, is Fuji, which is near the, um, the volcano, which is only an hour and a half out of Tokyo. And because of the, the enormous time difference, obviously coming from the UK, I try and go a few days early to acclimatize and, and I might add one or two days on top of that just to at least spend some time in, in the city. And, and it's one of my sort of favorite cities to travel to. So that, at that time I make an exception because I'm, it's not every, it's not every week I can fly 14 hours out to, to Japan. Okay. So you've killed the myth. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, maybe I've just dropped the reality check on for a lot of people. Okay. So there are no, there are no private jets and there's, uh, well, but Tokyo there, um, there, there are, there are, but at different levels. And I think, um, for the most part, it's not, I mean, an F1 definitely, um, it's also, it, it depends where the money is and, and what people are choosing to invest the money on. Um, the, the, the whole, um, industry must be influenced and impacted on kind of emergent and continuously emerging tech. It is. And it's at the forefront of development for what we're seeing in, in on road cars and things like this, you know, the hybrid era nowadays with lots of cars being hybrid. Le Mans was, was one of the, the front runners for hybrid technology. Um, I always think of it as in LMP one, when LMP one was at its great and biggest, there were, very very efficient hybrid cars racing at Le Mans and you know if you get into an Uber now nine times out of ten it will be a Toyota Prius right a hybrid Toyota and that technology was perfected and developed at Le Mans 10-20 years ago with Toyota as one of the major car manufacturers as well as Audi and Porsche and, and all these others um, so it's also quite cool to see that the sort of continuous involvement and you know stepping into the unknown in motorsport has some trickle down effect to help you know general society um especially obviously from um a motorsport and motor manufacturer point of view we're on biofuels now there's talk about getting rid of tire heaters and tire warmers um i think that's already happened this year um and again because of the global footprint and and all of that sort of stuff um I'm, I don't quite know where I stand because obviously there's some fundamental limitations with, with a sport that travels across the world with flights and, and shipping costs and all that sort of stuff, which, which might undo some of the, some of the efforts to improve the, um, the carbon emission and emission created from, from motorsport. But I think any step in, in that direction is, is good and should be commendable. There is huge environmental impact if you're flying, you know, not one but multiple cars around the world and forty people and a lot of a lot of different industries though nowadays rely on travel um, to make it work. You know, def lots of different business industries, but um, there's always steps being made every year to make it more efficient and more climate friendly. And I think, yeah, what's interesting to me is the area where they're developing things that might not have been developed and might not have had the R&D put into it without motorsport. 
I think that sort of stuff is, is quite useful and wouldn't have occurred without sort of these historic but also useful uh, useful sports. There's a balance, isn't there? The impact is that the consumer uh, has the opportunity to reduce their carbon footprint through the tech that you guys are developing. Well, that's not a bad thing. But what I was going to ask you was electric cars, when you... When you um, drive an electric car, um, you can go from 0 to 60 in like four seconds. So is that going to have yeah, an impact? Yeah, much less now as well. Yeah, I mean, is that going to have an impact on um, your car? Um, well, the top class at Le Mans, for example, has been hybrid for many time, for many years. Um, ultimately, I'll see it. I, I, I believe it's going to go fully hybrid. Um, I don't think it'll go electric because it's just not sustainable. Um, and you can't, you, I don't think the technology will be around for quite a few years to allow us to do a 24 hour race because of refueling times. And, and the biggest stigma electric cars have is that you can't put into a petrol station and fill it up. You have to wait a charger, even a fast charger takes minutes, tens of minutes. Um, I think ultimately I'm quite excited with projects about hydrogen, um, as a substitute for fuel, because you could quite easily or rather easier than than having electric power stations have petrol stations but instead of it being you know diesel and petrol it'd be um hydrogen um and there's been initiatives in motorsport um one of the bigger issues that people may not think about is if everyone did go to electric how's the grid going to handle all that extra surge of, of power needed and where's going to be all the space to park up and charge your cars or do we all have big batteries under our homes um, yeah, a question that I don't think will ever be answered because I think hydrogen will come into it before we need to get to that point. Um, but I, I always, whenever I think about this sort of stuff and I see the evolution and change, it's quite scary because, you know, change seems to happen so fast in this like technology, technology evolution that we're kind of living in. Um, so it makes me a bit apprehensive about it and I just want to push it away and say, no, I want everything to remain the same. But I mean, for the uh, for the motives of the climate and things like this, I can perfectly understand why there's so much sort of haste um, needed towards these these topics. I mean, in your line of work, I mean, there, there's always been change and shift. I mean, technological change to you know even the construction of the cars and the materials the cars are built with and the types of fuel they use. I mean, your car. I'm. I mean, I have no idea, but I'm assuming your car is much lighter now than it would have been. 15 or 20 years ago yeah and it's 99 percent carbon fiber pretty much yeah so i mean but does that make it more susceptible to more damage if it crashes or less susceptible to more damage um not really because they, they've developed it to be really strong um in certain areas and you know with modern safety regulations in motorsport it's there's a lot of thought that's gone into it and, and like the evolution on year on year it's become a very safe sport personally i don't really believe i'm ever at risk of anything um either that's a very confident outlook or just naivety i'm not sure um but you know we haven't seen a driver pass away in endurance racing for quite some years um and serious injuries are becoming much less frequent because of the way in which the car crumples in an accident it's not about it being super super strong it's about the way in which it absorbs the impact and, and disperses the energy to make sure that it's not getting pushed straight through if, we, it was, if it was just as strong as possible then if you hit a barrier all that force would come straight to the driver it's about how that absorbs and disperses the energy which is really really quite good so whenever you see a crash and there's bits of bodywork flying everywhere ultimately that's a good thing because it's meant that that's energy being dispersed in different directions not all coming straight out that driver yeah and then that i mean that's the kind of advance isn't it in the technological advance in understanding you know it's like crash test dummies isn't it you can you can see what's exactly. going to happen um before it actually happens and also i i i i do some work with 3d printing and i know a lot of components are now 3d printed for cars yeah definitely and especially in, in f1 i think it's becoming more and more used um, carbon fiber is still difficult to 3D print based on the process. Um, I'm not the most well versed on, on the topic, but 
you know, creating a mold and then setting the mold and then essentially putting it in like a kiln to, to cure. Um, it's still a, a process that would be very difficult to to change. Um, but yeah, even, even the level of technology involved in how they lay the the fibers in what direction and how they can strengthen certain directions and weaken certain others to save weight and it's fascinating and I don't know enough about it to really to really talk about it but yeah it's even even in, in that aspect they're, they're sort of evolving and, and changing the industry. I mean what are the biggest changes you've seen I mean you've mentioned that over the past few years there have been kind of more restrictions in terms of um, I don't know speed or you know, safety restrictions. Do you think that's impacted on the way you drive? I mean, is that a good thing or a bad thing or has it become restrictive? Um, ideally, I'd want it to be as fast as possible, to be honest. I don't want us to, to be going any slower. Um, I can understand the reasons behind it. Um, it's normally to keep the cost down as opposed to like a safety thing. I think some of the bigger changes we've seen have been changes to circuits um, for safety. So areas where there have been quite nasty crashes in the past have changed significantly and slight layout differences have changed to just create different runoffs or areas in which they, if you were to have a crash it'd be a lot safer and like I'm saying the calculations for what if that person crashed at this point into this position at this angle how would the energy be dispersed those are the sort of changes we're seeing um, aside of that the biggest changes I've seen in the last few years was just everything to do with COVID for those couple seasons where we've had to live with that and um now it seems like we're back into into how things used to be a couple of years ago which is nice um it seems like a distant memory covid a little bit um and i always forget it was two years because it felt to me like it was one i think it's because i feel like i've lost a year of my life in terms of changes like apart from the circuits and and the regulations to make things more efficient and safer the biggest changes obviously i've seen have been uh been through that whole COVID process in the last couple of years. I mean, I'd think that, you know, racing is about going fast, <laughs> as fast yeah. as you possibly can, rather than restrict restricting it. And also, I mean, when you think about the, you know, you, you're talking about costs, I mean, you think about the costs anyway are astronomical to, you know, have teams of people flying around the world racing cars. You'd think, well, that's least of the you know least of the worries you'd be surprised you'd be surprised how much of the the budget actually goes towards the running cost of the cars and how much going five seconds a lap quicker um can actually cost in terms of running cost and mileage of the parts so what a lot of people don't realize is all the parts on the car have a set mileage so they'll say that this wishbone this little suspension upright whatever it'll be this screw this bolt can only be on the car for, let's make up a number, 10,000, 20,000 kilometers. After that point, you're at risk of it breaking. Um, obviously, throughout its life, every time the car goes back in between races, in between sessions, they're crack checking it, making sure it's still structurally strong. There's no been any excess wear or anything like that, which has damaged it, because obviously you don't want one of these bits to break when you're traveling at 340 kilometers. Um, but the faster you travel, the the more money it costs to one develop the part and make sure it's strong at these speeds um and two the shorter the mileage it often becomes so the more frequent you have to change these parts um and cars race cars especially are not cheap <laughs> cheap things um so the faster you go the more expensive the cars are going to be to make and to run um and the less mileage they'll typically do and Beyond that, the R&D that has to go in to, to make them sustainable and efficient um, and survive 24 hours of abuse at Le Mans um, becomes very expensive. Um, and actually, the cheaper side of motorsport is flying everyone around and booking hotels and all the staff. The expensive side is is just the sheer cost of running these cars and the amount of care and attention they need and, and how many times you have to change things that might break within mileage, at mileage, all these sort of things. And, and each part in a race car is sort of three, four, five, ten times more expensive than it would be um, on a road car. So that's where the money really goes. Um, and that's why slowing it down typically brings the budget down within reason. Um, but as the years go on, normally they're able to creep faster 
in efficient ways. Um, and I'm hoping that will happen because I just want to go fast. <laughs> yeah. So that makes actually that, that, you know, makes absolute sense. And I can tap into the luxury element again, um, bring it back to, you know, that because, yeah, within the craft of luxury, I mean, the things should be about the materials to make sure that they're as efficient as um, possible. I still think that the cars should be able to go faster like you do. Do you play racing games? Um, not really. I mean, I grew up playing a few. Um, yeah, I don't really want to. I'm I've, Not that I've got an addictive personality, but um, I'd rather spend that time in the gym working towards something I can see as working more tangibly as a, to, to a result um, on the racetrack. Um, but yeah, I know if I sort of got on a sim an hour a day, it would soon turn to two hours a day, three hours a day. And, you know, in two months time, I'd be on it more time than I'd be in the gym, um, or on a bike or on a run. Um, so I'd be taking two steps back. So that's the main reason I don't, um, a lot of people do. Um, but yeah, especially with passing the time. What does a racing calendar look like? Um, and then the day within that, because, you, I mean, how much time do you get to spend in the car? How much time are you focused on fitness and diet and so most health? of the fitness and and yeah, so most of that stuff happens in between the races. On a typical race, you might arrive afternoon evening, um, go to the track, drop off your kit if you brought any with you, sort out the kit that the team has brought, make sure everything's working, have a few meetings, get back to the hotel, dinner, whatever, and then it might start the next day with. It always starts with a meeting in the morning where they set out the plan for the day, the running. Um, we have the practice typically on a weekend. If, if the Sunday is the race, the Saturday would be the quality and the Friday would be the testing. Um, sometimes the testing is also goes into the Saturday. Um, and sometimes testing is even earlier than Friday. It goes on the Thursday. Um, within those days, in, so let's say we had free practice one, free practice two and free practice three. We'll have a, a meeting beforehand where, where we'll set out the plan of the session between the drivers and we'll talk with the engineer of what we're expecting to see. Um, a debrief after to talk about the comments from the drivers and the comments from the engineer of how that went, what changes we want to make for the next session. Um, at which point then we'll go off and do whatever media requirements we have to do. Um, see a physio if we have any issues cropping up at this point because you're trying to stay on top of that before the race. Um, the car's then getting change set up make all the measurements being taken the differences because things will change during the session too to make sure that nothing's gone wrong they'll check the car over take down all the measurements check down all the numbers and then proceed to put on the new setup or do the changes they want to test for the next session um, then we'll come back have that again pre-briefing and then go in the car again have that one and a half hour session and repeat that process um, and amongst that we're eating we're chilling we're, we're we're just trying to do whatever it takes to to stay quick and fast and efficient um looking at data um with with engineers and and i think each person is doing a different thing so the drivers are kind of floating around doing have, have got all these requirements um the engineers have a lot of stress on their hands because they're making the calls along with the drivers um and they're that people staring at a computer pretty much throughout the whole day. And then when we might leave after dinner and go back to the hotel, the work doesn't stop for the guys, the mechanics. They'll be there checking the car, crack checking the car, rebuilding the car, fixing anything, um, and going through procedures, bits of practice, all this sort of stuff. And engineers will be sat on their laptop for hours and hours and hours looking at little graphs and numbers and figuring out ways in which they can make these marginal gains to the setup to make it go quicker in different corners and different sort of yeah looking at all the different aspects then they're looking at strategy and all this sort of stuff so there's a huge huge amount of work that goes into it i'd say typically the race weekend is a kind of a five-day weekend um and the team obviously get in there a bit earlier because they're setting up the the garage setting all the things up putting in powerpoints and and making sure there's no cables running across the middle of the floor and all the sort of basic stuff um beforehand rolling the cars out, cleaning the cars, doing whatever they need to do. Um, and then obviously in between each race, the car has to typically come back to get rebuilt. Or if they're flying from race to race and they're long-haul flights or going on a boat, um, you know, between continents, they might have to stay on after the race for a couple of days and prep the car, rebuild the car completely. So then when they arrive at the next race, they don't have that to do because at some point it has to be done. Um, because 
we won't go through a whole year with the same engine and gearbox that will change consistently throughout the year. Um, wiring loom, things, things like this, they're all lifed. So um, they need to stay on top of all that. And um, and that's that huge amount of work that I sometimes talk about behind the scenes where we've flown home, we're back to our normal day's life, which is you know waking up, training, eating, training, watching a bit of TV, doing some emails, whatever that may be. Um, and they might still be at the racetrack prepping the car for the next event or they'll be flying back. And yeah, the hours are immense and I have absolute full respect for, for the guys in, in the team I race for um, because without them, we, we wouldn't be able to go racing. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, because they're reliant on you and you're so reliant on them. Um, and you have, I mean, yeah. I suppose... And it doesn't work without, without each other. Yeah, which is, you know, I mean, that's proper teamwork, isn't it? Are the races, are all the races you do with teammates? Yeah, um, so there'll be the the same three drivers for WEC and a different three drivers for the European Championship. So um, one of the guys in WEC is a driver I've shared the car with for many years now, Felipe Albuquerque. Um, it's like a friend of mine nearly because we've been sharing, been in the same team for so many years. Um with a new a new driver alongside us, and then in the European Championship, um, two drivers I've never driven with before, but one I know quite well. Um, so yeah, so that whole dynamic changes. Normally, the team are very good with picking personalities that kind of bond and mesh because you don't want someone that's you know toxic in the team and and can upset the the flow of things, and that that's never that good, especially in like you said a, a sport that sort of requires so much of that team element and, and companionship um, to be able to succeed. Um, so, yeah, hoping for a, for a good year after what last year was slightly disappointing. But I, I like I keep telling people that um, normally after a bad year, that's when the changes happen and that's when you can kind of, everyone sort of takes a step back, gathers the motivation and makes those changes to hopefully have a successful year the following one. And I hope that last year was that year and this year will be that that success. How do you recover from, um, you know, disappointment? Because I, I, I read an interview you did uh, longer where you said you were quite disappointed by last year's results. I mean, how do you pick yourself up after that? Yeah, it's an interesting actually question because um, with most sports, like football, you're playing, you know, a few games a week. Um, so if you have a bad result, you, you've got another game to, to look at. And obviously it's different in, in a championship and even in, in football when you're sort of in the semi or, or final, whatever. Um, but with us, I find like that winning emotion, that euphoria you get from winning, really doesn't last that long. It might last a few days maximum. But the feeling you get from finishing second, third, losing essentially anything that isn't winning is is, is losing. Um, and, and bad races where you're not even on the podium and, and really struggling, that lasts from the moment you leave that track till the next race, um, which sometimes can be weeks. Um, so that's, you know, that needs to be your motivation in, in the gym, your motivation to, to work with the team and, and make those gains and, and hit the ground running when you come back. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, it's not easy. Um, and you need to be constructive about it because it is a very destructive kind of thought to have. Um, but that's the, that's the nature of, of any sport. But I find that in motorsport, because we have these gaps between races, those losses really do hang over you. Um, and you, you, you know, you, you self-analyze a lot in, in, in our sport and there's data on everything you do. So there's no hiding away or shying away from what you've done wrong or your poor performances of that weekend. Um, and there's always something to improve on. So, you know, you, the kind of spotlights on you, um, between these races and you, you do have to analyze and, and, and look at it and, and kind of own up to where you can improve on and how you may have let the team down in that, in that one stint or whatever. Um, and that pressure and that sort of commitment is, is what ultimately make, separates everyone and sort of ensures that you're, you're ultimately going to get the results that you, you deserve. Yeah, I mean that's amazing because I mean you have to be you have to be constantly driven to win, don't you? I mean, there's your pun yeah. again. Driven to yeah. win. <laughs> exactly. One thing I I saw that you do is called Team Achilles Kids Race Car Workout. What is that? 
I started this uh, during lockdown. One of the one of the people I work with um, on the PR side was affiliated with this um, New York charity, and during lockdown, they would do, they, normally they do runs in throughout New York and and virtual workouts. Obviously, once COVID hit, um, and they sometimes have different people um, taking part and leading these workouts with these kids with with the rider. <laughs> Um, a various amount of, of like sad, sadly to say, you know, just physical and mental disabilities. Um, and yeah, I just started doing it during lockdown, you know, virtually. And I've, I've done one in person with them when I was stateside after a race one year in, in New York. Um, it's quite nice. It's um, a really great team of, of kids that we kind of try and do virtual workouts um we try and get through them and, and, and sort of associate them with motorsport and what I'd be doing in my in my own routines that, and try and, you know, attribute it to, to what I might need in the car and explain why why it's good for you and, and get them moving. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a great charity and, and I enjoy working with them. I want to ask you the final question, and this is the question I ask to everybody I chat to. Uh, what is your luxury? Oh, my luxury. Um... My luxury is is spending time with with friends and good meals and socializing because quite often I can miss out on that side of life, especially with my travel. You know, there's you can't change the dates you're away racing. Um, it's just that quality time. There's quality moments. Quite often it's food based for me because I am quite wary of what I eat for my diet and things like this. Um, but seeing my friends, um, I kind of have like a long distance friendship with a lot of my friends. I know a lot of people have long distance relationships. I have like long distance friendships um, because I'm traveling so much. So um, trying to balance that social life, that's kind of my luxury. That's what I look forward to after winning a race or having that time off, being able to spend that quality time with, with friends and family. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's my luxury, to be honest. Um, I wouldn't say it's that material but that's probably because it's it's what i really don't have that much of which is time brilliant phil hansen thanks very much for joining us on the in pursuit of luxury podcast thanks a lot sean thank you phil thank you to our sponsors interlake books and thank you for listening. And don't forget, you can catch up on all previous episodes of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favourite listening platform. 